The scripture reading for this morning is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. If you want to follow along in the Bible in front of you, it's very easy. It's on page 3 of the Bible. Don't have to turn too far. Would you please stand in honor of God's word? Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is God's word. If you'd like, you can once again turn to Genesis 3 to follow. Many years ago, I heard a story about a uh, pastor's son who was joking around with one of his friends. And they were telling filthy stories to each other in their language. They were swearing and just laughing away. And of course, the filthier his language got, the more his friend laughed. And just as he was in the middle of this great story, swearing away, he saw his friend kind of look above his head and get this frightened look in his face. The pastor's son turned around, looked, and he saw his father. And he saw tears streaking his cheeks. And he said, you know, all of a sudden, the jokes weren't so funny anymore. Is when we can often enjoy our sin until we realize that a loved one is standing there and watching. It changes everything. You know, this morning, what I want us to do is to feel the heart of God. To see the tears rolling down His cheeks when we sin. You see, very often we think of sin merely as breaking the rules, failing the test. And when we see it in that way, we, we can't understand why God's reaction to sin. I mean, after all, if I, I fail a test, you know, it's not good, but isn't God overreacting? And if we see sin merely as failing to live up to God's law, our response is perhaps to scold our hearts 
but our hearts aren't changed. It's only when we really feel what God feels about our sin, when we see what our sin does to God, that our hearts will melt, and then the Holy Spirit can then take those melted hearts and mold them into what He desires. Our Father, I pray that today You would transform our understanding of our sin. That we would see how it breaks the heart of God and that that would break our hearts. Lord, let us enter in to the wonders of who you are and why you feel what you feel. Lord, only your Holy Spirit can do it today. My bumbling words aren't are going to accomplish anything. But you can take your word today and truly change our hearts. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. For us to truly understand what God feels in the depths of his being about our sins, we need to look at the depths of God's being himself. And that's what we've been doing over the last three weeks and we'll do for two more weeks. And that is to look at who God is as a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But what we've been doing is looking into that relationship. And seeing that because he is a tri-personal God, that he is three persons, that he not only can, but that he has an intimate, deep love relationship within himself. And because he has that love relationship, he himself now is love. There is a dynamic union that happens between Father, Son, and Holy Spirits. The theologians call it a perichoresis. <clears throat> you can write that one down. Perichoresis. It's the internal dynamic of what's happening within God himself. And author and, and preacher Tim Keller described it this way. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. Each voluntarily circles the other two's, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. Last week, we described it more as a divine party, a divine wedding party that God invites us into. In fact, the, the reason he created us was to experience this divine dance or the divine party that is happening within himself. He wants us to feel the fullness of the joy that he has. His love overflows, and that's the reason he's created us. But we also saw that in John 17, there were two elements that were at the very center of this dynamic dance or party. And those are love and glory. There is an eternal love relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And all that they do is out of love for each other. There is also a mutual glorifying relationship. And we described last week that the essence of glory is value importance. Yeah, glory is to lift up someone, but we lift them up, we praise them, because they are so valuable, so precious to us. Just like if we found a valuable stone, we might praise it to the hilts, a jeweler would. So we praise God, but we also make him the most valuable thing in our lives and center around him. And so God created us to experience that love-glory relationship that he has within himself. And so he creates us, pouring out his love, bathing us in his love, and also giving us his glory. The same kind of glory, not the same totality of that glory. So in turn, for us to live in this divine party the way we were meant to, we, in turn, would give God our love, Therefore, Jesus gave the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but also to glorify him. And because we are so filled with love and glory, we don't need to get it outside ourselves. We are full. So our lives become all about loving, glorifying God. That's the original creation, and that's what our lives are intended to be. But as we read Genesis chapter 3, we see something happen. And what we see happen is the reason that when you look out at our world today, you don't see a divine party, but you see a very broken world in tremendous turmoil with incredible pain and suffering. And it is because of the sin that we brought into this world and into this relationship with God. And what we're going to see is that at the very heart of sin, the very center of sin, is that we strike at the very two elements that are the core of God's relationship. We betray his love and we usurp his glory. That's the essence of sin. So let's look at what's happening in Genesis 3. Of course, you may know the background. God created man He created woman, and he placed them in a paradise. I mean, he placed them in a place that uh, the Disney World complex doesn't, doesn't hold a candle to. The, out of his love, he has given them everything they need. He is pouring out his love. He lives in a love relationship with them. He created them in his image. He walks with them. He communes with them. He talks with them. He shares himself with them. He loves them to the fullest. And as Psalm 8 says, after the psalmist looks at the the creation of God and is awed by the splendor and glory of God and then looks at himself and he says, what is man that you would think of him? I mean, why would you even care for us? And he answers his own question. It says, because you... You, O God, bestowed us. You made us a little lower than angels and you bestowed on us glory. See, God gives everything to fill us completely. And that is precisely what Satan strikes at. 
The serpent, Revelation tells us, is Satan, is in the serpent. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said, "Uh, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. If we do that, we are going to certainly die. Do you see, what is Satan striking at immediately? He is trying to get Eve to question God's goodness and love. He is trying to get Eve to think that God will not fulfill every desire that she has. Because he gets her to look at the one tree that God has reserved for himself. Now, let's just take it aside to understand the meaning of this tree. Because God is not selfish in making this tree only for himself. He is completely selfless. This tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. Another way to put it that brings out its meaning is that the one who possesses this tree is the one who has knowledge of good and evil. God says, this is my tree. I am the one who knows good and evil in and of himself. I am the moral center of life. I determine what is right and wrong. I will give you my will to follow. Now, for Adam and Eve to eat of that tree is to say, No, God, that is not your prerogative over my life. That is my own prerogative. I will determine what is good and evil for my life. I will determine what is right and wrong. I will become my own moral center. I will be the master of my ship, the captain of my soul. And so what happens when everyone begins to vie for that role? We live lives the way we want to live them, and our lives clash and create the chaos that we live in. The best thing for us is to submit to God's will to hold him up as the God of glory who knows right and wrong, who offers us his will that we center our lives around. So that's why God's kept this tree. But Satan gets them thinking in terms of there is a tree, there is something we cannot have. God's withholding something good from us. That is a questioning of God's love. And they're ultimately saying, if we are missing this, we cannot be fulfilled by God. We will take of this tree, we will eat of it, and this tree will bring us the completion of our fulfillment. Essentially, they are turning from a God of love who, in God's creation, is essentially betrothed to us, God's relationship with Israel and the church are both imaged as him being the husband, we being his wife. And so they turn from this love to seek fulfillment outside of 
the love of God in through this tree. Now, what do we call it when a spouse turns to someone else for the love that is to be fulfilled by their marriage partner? We call it adultery. And that's precisely the way James 4 describes it. When he shows the the effect of sin and the dynamic of how sin works in our lives, he says this. He said, you know, the quarrels, the fights, the struggles that are going on in our life are a result of your seeking to fulfill desires that have so captured your life, they become over-desires. And so because you are seeking to fulfill these desires on your own, you're in competition with one another for those. And that's what creates the quarrels, the fights, the selfishness, the self-centeredness that you experience in life. The solution, he's going to say ultimately, the solution is draw near to God. You draw near to God because the fulfillment of all The real core needs in our lives come not just from God giving them to us. They come from God himself. He is the fulfillment of our divine needs. He is our beloved spouse who desires to give us and fill us in every way. And James says to us who are not turning to God for fulfillment, he says, You adulteresses. It's interesting, very few versions of the Bible say adulteresses because you have an image of just one partner committing adultery, the woman. But James very intentionally chooses that word because we are the bride of Christ. What is at the very core of our sin? is adultery. It is a betrayal of God's love. There are probably some of you here who have experienced the hurt, the pain, the nightmare of someone committing adultery. The rest of us, we can't imagine or fathom that pain. But think, God's love is infinite. He loves us infinitely more than we love our spouse. So the pain he feels in our adultery is even infinitely more than the pain that we feel. You see, God was complete in himself. He was fully self-satisfied. He did not need us. But he chose to make himself and his heart vulnerable to us. He created us out of his love. He put us at the center of his life. And if you question that, just look at the cross. He sent his son for us. He put us at the center of his love. And we turn to other lovers. You see the tear coming down God's cheek. We strike at the heart of the eternal relationship of love and the eternal relationship of God's 
glory that he's called us into. For we see what ultimately happens when they eat of that fruit. Satan says it in the temptation. If you eat of it, you will be like God. Have you heard those words before? If you've studied Satan at all, you realize many theologians believe that Isaiah 14 talks about the fall of Satan. And it says this. You said in your heart, God saying to Satan, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zion. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And what he is saying is, I will step into the heavens. I will raise my throne above God. I will sit on the throne that God has reserved for himself. I will receive the glory due his name. I will be like God. I will usurp his glory. And he offers the same temptation that he fell to to Eve at this point. Eat of the tree and you will be like God. You will receive the glory due his name. You will center your life around yourself. That's what you need for fulfillment. And so she turned from the glory of God to take that unto herself just as Satan did. Last week, we we depicted what God desired in his creation of us, of the kind of our coming into oneness with his glory as one of the victory celebrations of, say, the Red Sox. Remember the Red Sox? They have this great victory. They have this incredible glory as the greatest baseball team in the world, and they have tremendous celebrations among themselves, those who accomplished all the work. But they also realize there's fans out there who've been rooting with them, whose hearts have been with them. And so what they do is they organize a parade. And millions of people in the Boston area come to that parade. And they get on the duck boats. And the duck boats go down to Charles and through the rivers of Boston. And the fans are on the edges screaming and yelling, cheering and praising and glorifying the Red Sox. And not one of us stands there and says, boy, are those Red Sox self-centered coming through the streets of Boston trying to get glory. We are caught up in the experience and we are saying, I am so thankful they shared their glory with us. They made us a part of that glory. That's what God wants. That's what worship is all about. But instead, what we're doing is we're like fans who who raid the duck boat, start throwing the Red Sox off the boat, fighting with one another as to who's going to get to ride through the streets as the center of it all. And you can imagine the bedlam and chaos that results from that. Just look around at our world because that's what we've done. We strike at the love of God. 
we strike at the glory of God, and I hope you can see the tears coming down God's cheeks. What do you think God feels? The Bible says God feels anger. He's got a broken heart, but he's also angry about our sin. The Bible speaks of wrath, and we we don't like to hear about that. But let's stop for a moment and think about that. Yeah, God has every right because of his holiness and his justice to feel that betrayal, to feel that anger that a spouse feels when they're betrayed. In fact, if a spouse hears that their partner committed adultery and they go, hmm, okay, no big deal. We'd really wonder, question, where is the love? No, the, if there's love, there is immediate rage. There's brokenheartedness, but there's anger and there's rage. If God just sat back and said, ah. so they're out there sinning, breaking my law, I mean, hey, they're just failing the test. We'd begin to question God's love. Yeah, God's angry. He's angry not just because he's hurt, but because of the others who are hurt. If somebody comes in and assaults my family, I'm angry when they assault me, but I'm more angry that they assault my wife and they assault my son. And, you know, when the Holy Spirit is grieved by, he's grieved by sin. But he's more grieved that that sin is dishonoring to Jesus Christ, God the Son, and to God the Father. And Christ is, Jesus is hurt by our sins. But God the Son said, those who reject me reject my Father. Are you not angry? When someone harms the ones you love most. But that circle goes out to us as well. And God is angry when he sees the sin that we perpetrate against him, but on each other. When you hear about the Jerry Sandusky story and what's happened to those children, Does it just go over your head and say, yes, so what? Or does it start to hit at the core of you? When you got the news about the shooting in the theater in Aurora, Colorado, did you say, oh, another another bad story? Did it really cut into you? We expect it not to cut into the heart of God. What does God do with this wrath? I mean, there is a wrath that that will one day consume this world. He doesn't want to consume us. No matter what we've done against Him, no matter how grievous our sin against Him is, unfathomably, He still loves us. You know, there's a story in the, the book of Hosea. In fact, God 
called Hosea as a prophet because he wanted Israel to understand what his sin meant to him. And he says, Hosea, you're going to represent me and I want you to marry a prostitute. So and that prostitute is going to adulterate herself and that's exactly what he does. He marries this woman, he loves her, and she goes out and sells herself to man after man after man. Till finally she is in the pits of despair Nobody wants her anymore. And so she's being sold on the slave block. And God's saying, don't you realize that that's what your sin does to my heart? I love you, but you keep committing adultery against me. But he says to Hosea, go to that auction block. Pay the price for her. Redeem her to yourself. Because that's what I do for you. Though we commit adultery against him, he so loves us, he pursues us, he sends his son to pay the price for our sin, to pay the debt for our sin while we're in our adultery so that he could bring us back to him into what? To bathe us in his love, His glory to bring us back into that relationship. That's what the Christian life's all about. Yes, God has wrath. He has a whole cup. You know, a cup often speaks of judgment and wrath. And we have in John 18, the chapter that follows Jesus' prayer in John 17, that shows us the perichoresis of God. We have a picture of of life itself. The response of the world to Jesus Christ in the soldiers as they march into the garden, in the kiss of Judas, betraying Jesus. One who so said, oh, I love you, I love you, I'm one of you, I follow you, betrays him with a kiss. That's our world toward God. God has wrath back. And Peter's trying to represent that. And he pulls out his sword and he lops off the ear of one of the arresting party. And Jesus says, hold it. He put up the sword and he says this. Will I not drink the cup that the Father has prepared for me? You see, Jesus' response, the Father's response out of his wrath is... Christ says, I will drink that cup for them, for you. And on the cross, Christ drank that cup. And the cost was that perichoresis, that love, glory, relationship that he had with the Father from eternity past that meant everything to him that he had always experienced As one pastor said, we will never understand the sacrifice of Christ until we understand the Trinity. That relationship was severed and he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, I thirst. The one who said, if there is anyone who is thirsty, come to me and I will give you drink of the Spirit of God. Father, I am separated from you. Spirit, I thirst for you because 
of you and me. Our hearts won't really change though they are melted by the Spirit of God in helping us to understand what our sin does to the heart of God. Our Lord, it is only your Spirit that does that. I offer my sin to you. Throughout this week, you have held it ever present before me. You have driven the knife of your word, the sword of your word into my heart. I pray the work you've done in my life this week will never go unchanged. That we might each experience this. So that we might realize in greater, greater ways not only the pain you suffer, but the horror you experienced for us so that we can grasp the heights and depths and widths and breadths of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen.